It's not a difficult novel. It's full of difficult ideas, but it's entertaining. I would love to live in a culture where when we say that something is a difficult read, that should be an excitement. Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. This is our last episode of the season. Today, I'm talking to Percival Everett, the 2023 recipient of the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Fiction about Ralph Ellison's classic novel, Invisible Man. Percival Everett is the author of more than 30 books of fiction and poetry. His most recent books are Dr. No and The Trees. His next novel, James, a reimagining of Huckleberry Finn, is scheduled for release in March 2024. All of the 2023 Wyndham Campbell recipients will receive their prizes and participate in the Wyndham Campbell Prizes Festival at Yale University September 19th through the 22nd. Events are free and open to the public. The festival schedule can be found on our website at wyndhamcampbell.org after August 15th. Percival, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. No, thanks, Michael. Also, thank you for selecting this book. I hadn't read it in like 15 years, and I remember that it was a great book, but rereading it, I was just astounded once again at, at how great this book is. And so I'm, I'm just really excited to, to talk to you about it today. Oh, good. I'll see if I can remember it as well as you know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got all my notes here, so it's a yeah. little bit unfair. But you know, I keep thinking about, like, why do I have this experience reading this book this time? You know what I mean? Like, where I'm, where I'm really just sort of like, oh, my God, this is like one of the great America. I mean, literally, like Moby Dick, you know, it's in that pantheon for me. And I, I guess I've just been trying to think about like what it is that makes me feel that way about that book rather than another book that I like a lot. But I guess like Moby Dick, right? There are parts of Moby Dick where you're like, I don't know if you needed that, you know? Well, yeah. Or <laughs> you, get a, whole lot about, you get a whole lot about working with Blubber, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, there's something about the unevenness of that, right? Or, or the yeah. excess of that. There's this kind of like leftover or something to the novel, right? That... Well, that's the modernist thing. You're burying yourself and then trying to enjoy the language. One of the reasons I like it is, is reading it is a big part of it. Mm. You're not going to forget you're reading a book in the same way you don't forget you're reading a book when you're reading Ulysses. That's a part of the experience of understanding as being, if they're not trying to hurtle you through a story so that you get some content. Yeah, it was interesting. I was reading the Paris Review interview that he did. It was like the art of fiction number eight. I can't remember. I forget who the two writers. It, it just says interviewer in the book. I looked it up and it was one white man and one black woman interviewing him. Mm -hmm. And the tone of the questions I thought was fascinating. They kept asking him like, well, how, how can you write something about a minority and then hope for it to be universal? And he was very patient responding to these. Most of the time he would just say, well, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what universality mm -hmm. might mean here. You know what I mean? That well, kind of you know, the position that black writers were put in is always a suspect. Anytime a novelist would, would come out with a work that was, was in any way well-received, the blurb on the back of the book would say, one of the greatest African-American novels, or <laughs> as they said about Invisible Man, the first person to review it for the New York Times. This is, is the best novel I've ever read by an African-American and, and of course, the, the implication is, is that, well, yes, but not as good as anything written by a white American. <laughs> right. There's that marginalization, that ghettoization of African-American letters. 
you know, when, as I was prepping for this, I was looking in the Wikipedia entry, which is always entertaining. And there was a moment where they started to quote some of the reviews for it or descriptions of it at the time. And they're, it's funny because they're all over the place. And yet there's something about their all over the placeness that yeah. <laughs> I thought really gets at what's great about this novel. You can't pin it down, right? All of these different types of novels, the Bildungsroman and the picaresque novel and the race novel and all of these things. And I think to me, what really stands out in reading this is how it's so much bigger than that. Like when you say picaresque, you immediately think Don Quixote, right? And you yeah. think about the ways in which that novel contains all novels somehow, and it contains everything that came before it and it brings it together into something new. And that's kind of what I feel like when I'm reading this, just like right from the start in the prologue, we start off and we're in hell, right? Like we're underground, we're listening to Louis Armstrong and we're descending into, you know, I think he even mentions Dante by name in the prologue or something like that, right? And so clearly like the ambition here is is far beyond some of the things that he might be, you know, might've been criticized for in the moment, right? Clearly he, here's somebody who is trying to construct a really ambitious novel that is taking into account the entirety of what came before it. And, and you know, what's kind of interesting, and, and one of the reasons I like the novel is, well, one, I love reading the novel. The writing is, is really engaging. But there's a pathos in the novel, and you, and you get to it when Ellison talks about it, that's fascinating. And that's his, his desire to not credit his African-American influences. It's very strange. And that plays out in the novel, and as far as life and art, one imitating the other. I don't know which way it goes. He is very quick to adopt T.S. Eliot's Wasteland and, and Ernest Hemingway as influences. Yet he doesn't look back to Gene Toomer, who was obviously an influence on the way he approaches these descriptive action scenes. If one reads the story Box Seat, and he doesn't credit someone who is quite obviously a huge influence on the novel, and that's Chester Himes in If He Hollers, Let Him Go. In fact, the battle royal scene is arguably pulled from the Chester Himes novel in the very subtle thing of the woman who accuses the main character of rape, her makeup being painted red, white, and blue. And the note that's in his briefcase is given to him is the same note that Bob Jones reads in his dream in If He Hollers, Let Him Go. Oh, wow, yeah. And so that influence had to be there, at least, and I can't say that it was even intentional. Maybe it was, he was influenced and didn't remember, you know, the way rock musicians say in, in the courtroom all the time. Now, I didn't know. I, I've never heard that song. Well, it's interesting. He seems at great pains to point out other African-American influences, right? Like the blues and jazz and, yes. and, and African-American folklore. But yeah, it's interesting that the literary influences, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was like, you know, there can only be one Highlander and Chester Himes was a contemporary, right? Well, and, and it's quite interesting that he would have chosen Louis as the musical reference. Obviously, Louis Armstrong, birth of jazz, hugely important. But one of the knocks on Armstrong, even when this novel was being constructed, was that Armstrong was playing for white people. Louis was always fantastic, but he was accepted and did. He wasn't Miles Davis. Miles Davis came later and Louis Armstrong paved the way for him. But Louis was a performer, an entertainer. And I'm always curious about, about that. 
You know, that, that makes me think of another question about audience and imagination of an audience for a novel like this. I was watching this documentary about Toni Morrison, and it was really interesting because she was talking about writing her first novel and how there was a novel that she wanted to read that she didn't think had been written yet. And so she set out to write it. But part of what she said she set out to do in writing The Bluest Eye was write a novel about black women that's written with a black audience in mind. Mm -hmm. And she kind of comes out and says overtly that even Invisible Man is written for a white audience. Well, when you observe the tension between Invisible Man and Native Son, in some ways, Native Son lends itself to a reading of a white audience that satisfies expectations of these black characters. It plays into the stereotypes that make the world make sense to them. Invisible Man does not do that. However, it does call into question much of the politics between black people that white people were standing outside watching, the difference between intellectuals and followers of Booker T. Washington, or the black nationalists versus those black people who, who fell in line and were following communism. So I certainly understand what Morrison is saying, but it might not be completely honest of her not to recognize that she's still also writing for it. She, the complex way to say it was, it would be probably she was writing for a black audience so that white readers could see what that product would look like. Mm, right, you know, right. Which is no small thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that is an issue that a lot of white writers are not aware of that they're writing very specifically to a certain group of people that does not include other groups of people. And, yeah. and, and assuming that they're writing towards the universal without really asking how the universal is created. <laughs> yeah, and, that, that's what, it, and that's such a naive question. The idea of the universal doesn't exist in the creator of the work of art. The idea of the universal exists in the nature of art, in that when the viewer, the reader, the audience comes to it, that reader finds what she or he needs to find in it to have it make sense to them. It's not a question of a writer deciding that something is a universal. It's an extrapolation from a story to something greater that, that makes sense. And that only happens in the reader. You said recently something about literary fiction being something you can't paint a picture of. And I had that in mind as I was reading through this book because there's this interesting thing that happens. It starts right at the beginning in, in the underground, in the basement, where when I try to picture in my mind what is being written about, I find it really challenging in a way that is not off-putting, in a way that is enticing, in a way that that makes me want to understand more. And as I thought about it, I feel like that's true at almost every major inflection point of the novel. Like he's he's this sort of master storyteller who's carrying you towards these emotional high points. And as soon as you hit the high point, it becomes less clear. And there's this real power in that. I'm thinking about like, for instance, like we're in this basement and he's got 1,369 mm -hmm light bulbs <laughs> mm -hmm. and he's stealing power and he's building walls and there's walls on all four sides of him and he's next going to build lights under him on the floor and they're all filament light bulbs and and trying to imagine that is almost impossible and yet there's something kind of sublime about trying to do so yeah it's um you're right I, that even the idea that he wants five phonographs 
so that he can play black and blue. And he wants to hear all five of them playing at the same time, different versions, which is, again, I can only think that it's a reference to, say, Charles Ives talking about music of the passing marching bands, <laughs> these different songs playing at slightly different paces and rhythms. But all of this comes back to the blindness. That's the, the constant theme throughout the novel. Almost at every turn, the juxtaposition of worldview is that you're either blind or you can't see it. Um, from the very beginning where they blindfold the kids at the Battle Royal, all those light bulbs, you really can't see anything in that, in that scene. To the minister at the college who gives the sermon, Barbie, turns out he's blind and you don't know it in the entire time that he's giving the sermon. To the big fight scene between the Brotherhood and Raz the Destroyer, where it's in the dark. And Invisible Man, the title, I love because we don't know whether it's because he can't be seen or whether, as the veteran says on the bus when he leaves the college going to New York, the veteran says that the invisibility, these are my words obviously, is a function not of other people, not of his invisibility, but the people around him are invisible. Mm. Mm. And, and um, so all of that is, is at play. And, and, and when you try to make that a universal, it's, it's a good study of, of, of what's universal. Mm, I should put it yeah. that way. There's this sense of, can anybody know the world? That idea of it as an existentialist novel, right? If we, if, if we have such blindnesses that are so yeah. obvious that we can't see somebody who's right in front of us, flesh and bones, do we exist at all? <laughs> or do they <laughs> exist at all? Yeah. Yeah. And of um, course, the wonderful question becomes, what novel is not existential? Mm. I can't think of a real novel where th that notion can't be brought up. If we, want to, if we could jump to your work for a second, this novel for you seems to be very generative. You come back to it a lot. I actually read an, a, an academic article that was like listing all the places that you reference Raphael's <laughs> via character names, the number 1,369, you know, all of these different things. And I, I like, what is it about this novel that is generative for you? How does it feed into your own creativity? I think mostly it's my interest in, in the angst that Ellison himself must have felt and I'm very curious about this, this problem he has with the influences. Because I, I tell the truth, I'm much more in love with Chester Himes' work, but the, the breadth of Invisible Man, it's worth mining. You have to really dig with some works, but that one, you, can, you always come out with a wheelbarrow full of stuff, and that's fun. And it is picaresque, which makes it different. It's episodic, you move through it. The language is not, is, is, they're wonderful sentences throughout. And I think our attitude as we get older about prose changes. Like when I read Ulysses now, it's not a scary thing. But when I first picked it up and talking about the novel in the world was, wow, this is really difficult. And, and that's one of the things that, that um, why I use Invisible Man is it's not a difficult novel. It's full of difficult ideas, but it's entertaining. And, and I think I use it because I want it to be a model for readers rather than a model for my work. I would love to, and I say this all over the place, but I would love to live in a culture where when we say that something is a difficult read, that should be an excitement. Why can't that be entertaining rather than off-putting? And it goes back, you know, it has its root in, in the anti-intellectual nature of, of 
our culture in particular, the way it's talked about in college, oh, that's a hard book. As if that's, that's a pejorative. Hard book should be an, should be an invitation. <laughs> I think it's also, you know, I mean, it is such an entertaining book. It really zips along and you, and you really get so invested in, in what's happening from scene to scene to scene. But it's also, I mean, it's a really funny book in places. And I like, I wonder if somebody who's very invested in humor, like, what do you think about the, the humor in this book and the irony? Well, that's the other reason I like the book is, is, is as much as I love Himes, it's not until he's in his detective fiction that his humor comes out. His literary novels are not funny at all. <laughs> <laughs> They're great, They're, but, but you don't get that irony. You get some of that irony early on in the Harlem Renaissance. Again, Gene Toomer's box seat is a hilarious story. Invisible Man is full of irony. It really is a product of a post-war Western culture. And if we start looking for irony in the, it upsets me that he doesn't mark as influences people like, and I can't remember her first name, Fawcett wrote Plum Bum mm -hmm. and Nella Larson. There are any number of novels that do have that kind of irony, but his is, is it's, exploded on the page. It is funny. It's surprising because of the nature of the, of, of the material that it should be funny. And I do employ that. I, th that book is an influence on me in that way. Speaking of Ulysses, I, when I was an undergraduate, I took a, an entire semester course just on Ulysses. And my professor, Phil Sicker said, he's like, we're going to dig into this. But before we start, I just want you to know, if you're not laughing out loud when you read this book, you're not getting it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I think that irony is really fascinating. You know, I mean, there's there's so many different places you could jump in to talk about it, but I think one of the most interesting ways is with the simple juxtaposition of black and white throughout the novel. He goes to the all-black college, and then he gets sort of bumped out of the black college for not pleasing the white people. Yeah. And then he gets a job at the paint factory whose That's main great, product yeah. is optic white. And then, of course, in the end... He's being chased down the street by a gang of people during the in the midst of a riot and falls down the sewer and ends up in a coal chute covered in black soot. It's interesting the way that he takes the idea of race as being something as simple as a color and 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 just troubles the line, as they say, you know, like by by constantly showing you different ways to think about whiteness and blackness that have nothing to do and everything to do with race. Well, you, you might like this. This has nothing to do with Ellison, but, but the whole <laughs> idea of, of color. You know, South Carolina was the only southern state to not adopt the one-drop rule. Mm. That, that, that rule being that if you have one drop of black blood, you are black. They didn't because of a racist politician named Pitchfork Ben Tillman, <laughs> who in a room at the University of South Carolina said to like-minded white racists when they were discussing this rule, if we adopt this rule, None of us in this room can own land. So it wasn't about, it wasn't about heritage and ancestors at all. It was about skin color. Yeah. Wow. So I wanted to ask if you had a favorite passage from this book. Well, I have so many, you know, obviously the, the very, you mentioned the very beginning of the novel, but one of the, the paragraph early on where he talks about Louis Armstrong, I'm fascinated by it because, um, and this may sound weird. The language of the novel is, doesn't feel, and I love reading it, but it doesn't feel syncopated to me. Mm. It doesn't capture the rhythm of jazz. It really feels 
like I can count the beats. And, <laughs> and I've always been interested in that. So it, even though there's, a, there's a, an homage to, to jazz in the novel, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a practice of it. Do you think you could read that for us? I'll do my best here with my light. There was a certain acoustical deadness in my hole. And when I have music, I want to feel its vibration, not only with my ear, but with my whole body. I'd like to hear five recordings of Louis Armstrong playing and singing, what did I do to be so black and blue, all at the same time. Sometimes now I listen to Louis while I have my favorite dessert of vanilla ice cream and slow gin. I pour the red liquid over the white mound, watching it glisten and the vapor rising as Louis bends that military instrument into a beam of lyrical sound. Perhaps I like Louis Armstrong because he's made poetry out of being invisible. I think it's because he's unaware that he is invisible. And my own grasp of invisibility aids me to understand his music. Once, when I asked for a cigarette, some jerkers gave me a reefer, which I lighted, and when I got home, sat listening to my phonograph. It was a strange evening. Invisibility, let me explain, gives one a slightly different sense of time. You're never quite on the beat. Sometimes you're ahead and sometimes you're behind. Instead of the swift and imperceptible flowing of time, you are aware of its nodes, those points where time stands still or from which it leaps ahead. And you slip into the breaks and look around. That's what you hear vaguely in Louis' music. And even there as I'm reading it, <laughs> one, two, three, four, one. <laughs> this is really hip, fellas, you know? <laughs> he seems like he was kind of a conservative jazz guy, too, right? Like, I was reading a later interview with him where he was just like, yeah, all this experimental stuff is not... Oh, really? Know? I've never oh, seen yeah. that. <laughs> that's funny. That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of it was it was kind of like a like a Stanley Crouchish rendition mm -hmm. of jazz, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love that Benny Goodman stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, who what are the characters that you are most interested in in this book? Well, I think without a doubt, Lucius Brockway, the guy who works in the in the in the bowels of the paint factory, and True Blood. Early on, the man who has been ostracized by the the black community for having impregnated his daughter, but ends up being a speaker of great truth and a source of r real world dismantling for the white benefactor of the college, uh, Norton. Yeah, True Blood was a character that I was really etched in my imagination from my first reading of the book. And that's, I think, another example of what I was talking about earlier, where when you read that scene of incest, where he's describing what happened, it's it's so difficult to figure out exactly like part of it's like, I think you don't want to believe it. And part yeah. of it's the way that he speaks it. It's elliptical and, mm -hmm. it, and it doesn't, he's, you know, claiming that it was a dream and he didn't know what he was doing. And so it has that dreamlike quality to it that I don't know, somehow makes it like all the more disturbing. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that, that it mirrors Norton's experience. Norton has had the same thing with his own incestuous feelings about his own daughter. And that's where the real pain from Norton comes from, is, is not so much witnessing this miserable life, but realizing it's not so different from his own. Yeah, and then, yeah, Lucius Brockway. I mean, that, that's, a, that's such a complicated character there too, right? Because 
that fight and the fight and also like the he's anti-union but not in an ideological way you yeah. know basically because he's like you know he's trying to hold on to his job and he's afraid that he's gonna lose his job well he's he's rightly paranoid He's black in this culture. He doesn't trust anyone. And that's another scene too, right? After the fight's over and he harms the narrator by, you know, doing something with, by, by fooling him somehow. That's another one of those scenes where I don't quite know what's, what's happening. You know, like what, what is he, what did exactly did he do here? Is there like, is it steam? Is it like paint? Like what is, what exactly has happened to the narrator in this? scene? he's obviously been injured. Yeah. And I'm not sure what happens there either. And, and, and for a while, I wondered if he had been hit with the chemical that made optic white work. Mm. And what would that do to him if it did hit him? Um, mm. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Because I was when I was reading it, I was like, I, I was trying to figure out, like, did the white paint come out or is it steam or, mm -hmm. you know, what? Like, but yeah, that 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 seems to make sense. Like maybe like he, he let it out so that the fumes are harming him. And then why well, does he end up in a, an experimental psychiatric ward? Well, yeah, well, then it, it, it does. It just gets crazy. Then he ends up with Mary, the woman who takes care of him. And a lot of time goes by. Yeah. That's the other thing that's difficult to grasp is that months go by while he's studying the um, positions of the brotherhood. Hmm. But not much happens in those months. And so uh, the balance and the rhythm of the, of, the, of the novel, well, maybe that's the syncopation he was looking for. But the novel at the end with language that doesn't speed up, but it feels rushed. I'm not sure how I, how, how I want to phrase that. And maybe that's necessary. We're, we're, we're rolling downhill toward the end, but there's, there's no less patience used in giving these scenes to us. So they're all fully filled out, but there's still the this, this sense of, of hurtling through space toward this end. And I don't know if I like that or whether it's a problem. Um, mm. can't be a problem because it's a part of the work of art, yeah. um, but I don't know if I like it. When did you first read this book? I have no idea. No idea? Yeah, I was, I was pretty young and I, and, um, the first time I think it was probably like your experience that you described where I thought, wow, this is really hard to, to read and I, and I got through it. And then shortly after that, I, I might've been 14 after that, I, I read it again and it was much easier to read. Maybe because I had more time, and maybe because I knew what to expect. What's interesting was I had not read Chester Himes before I read it, mm. and then when I did read Himes, after I went rushing to the front to see when it had been published. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Wow, this was before Invisible Man." Are most of his novels before Invisible Man? I'm just curious. Well, certainly, if he hollers, let him go is a few years earlier, yeah. and I think all of his literary novels were. Yeah. Then he became, a, he, he expatriated himself to France. And I think he was living there when he wrote the detective work. Right. And I, see, I, I've, I don't think I've read his literary works. I've only read the detective books. And I remember my experience reading them was that they definitely felt like they were a conversation with Invisible Man. And I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about it being in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, and I don't know when those, I, I think those might come out after Invisible Man. Yeah. Yeah. But that, like, they both, there's something about the two of them. Like, they both have this really on the ground, detailed knowledge of the Harlem of that particular time, I think, that, that they share, where you really feel the place and it, and it really comes alive. I think that, that's true. Yeah. That, what's interesting about that is also the case in If You Hollers Let Him Go, it's in Los Angeles. Oh, interesting. And there's, and there's a real feeling about LA. You can feel the city 
in it. In fact, there's the opening scene is, is one that I don't know if it's even the opening scene in my head, it's the opening scene, but who knows where the, the guy, the, the main character, I think his name is Bob Jones. He's walking across the street and he's having a great day. It's a beautiful day. And it's almost the opposite of, of invisible man in that he sees this white man behind the wheel of a, of a car looking at him with contempt and immediately his day changes because he's been reminded that he's black in this culture. Mm. So it's, it's not his invisibility, but his visibility mm. that, that has affected his entire personhood in a split second. Hmm. Yeah, one of the, I was, I was thinking about the humor too, between the two is, is kind of similar too. like the, like the whole joke of cotton comes to Harlem is that these like Southern white supremacists are like trying to bring the cotton industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very similar to the, it's a similar sensibility to sort of this company that's like making optic white paint and selling it to the military. Yeah, right? really and, and, uh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I'm sure that that comes after it. What would be interesting is, is to track the influences back and forth as you. Yeah. Do they know each other? Do you know? I have no idea. I doubt it, but I don't yeah. know. Never heard it mentioned in any way. And there's no mention of Himes in, in um, I don't think in Rampart's hands book, there's no mention of Himes, I don't believe. Well, now he, I have to go I mean, back did, and did look. he have like, I mean, was there sort of like academic interest in, in Himes? Back then, I mean, I think, I feel like his I don't know. interest in him is um, much more recent in terms of like people who would be writing about him uh, yeah. outside of the context of a book review or something. I don't know. I haven't read any, any scholarship on Himes. When he started making the detective novels, I think people stopped looking at his three literary novels. He does have a posthumous novel, which you might actually like. It's called Plan B. It's less um, constructed from the notes, but it's, it's a very, very strange revolution novel that I didn't think I would like, but I'm such a Chester Himes fan that someone passed it along to me. And I did fall in love with it, and I wished he'd had chan a chance to make it. Yeah. So, what do you think? Like, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, circling back to the unfinished novels. Like, what do you think about the fact? I mean, do you think he just like tapped himself out with Invisible Man? Uh, you know, gave it all to that one thing. I mean, it seems like he was working on something the rest of his life. And... I don't. I I don't know. Um, if you want to make work, you make work. I mean, I don't believe in maybe success and fear of not achieving the same kind of bombardment of accolades was tough for him. But, you know, life gets in the way of making work sometimes. But having done this for so many years, my belief about making art is you want to make it, you make it. Maybe, maybe no one will like it, <laughs> but, 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 you, but you make your art. Maybe finally he wasn't an artist, who knows? Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to reread this book. Middle age, I like the I've re, I've discovered rereading in a way that I don't think I did I, I did as much when I was younger, and it's just such a pleasure to come back to these books, you know. It really is, isn't it? Uh, speaking of re, I read one novel every year, uh, and that is um, Samuel Butler's The Way of All Flesh. Really? And it <laughs> all right, well, we're not fun. stopping. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the funniest novels you will ever read. <laughs> the The choice of of narrator is surprising and and unusual in that it's not a first-person narration and it's not a third-person omniscient narration, but someone outside the story who's connected with it. And the descriptions early on of the history of the, of the main character's family are so artfully done 
but it is hilarious. It's ironic, it's touching, and you find yourself worried about people. And that's, and that's a feat. You know, I think I might actually have that on my shelf. I'm trying to look to see if I, it's in my, if, it, if it's in my sight line. You know, everyone always thinks of Erwan when they think of Butler. I but do. I can see it right here. Yeah, that's it's right great. next to Naked Lunch. <laughs> there, and, and there you go. There's not a funny word in Naked Lunch. <laughs> and I've never gotten through it. <laughs> yeah, neither maybe have I. At, maybe at the end of Naked Lunch is hilarious. but <laughs> Honestly, that's one of those books that I don't have this experience very often. But that's one of these books where I got I got angry at it because I was like, you know, this isn't the world that I live in. <laughs> or that anyone <laughs> yeah that does. anyone lives in that's what i'm saying like yeah. it doesn't bear any resemblance to the world as i have experienced it in in any form or at any moment in my life yeah and uh and i've known i've known druggies and i don't think that's the role they live in <laughs> thank you everyone for listening Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. The Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast is a program of the Wyndham Campbell Prizes, which are administered by Yale University Libraries' Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library.